Hi there, it's Jillian, and I want to tell you about Jillian on Love Plus, your way to get even more Jillian on Love each week by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or Patreon. You can access exclusive bonus episodes with extras, including answers to your most burning questions, advice on all things dating and relationships, and much more. Check out the link in the episode description for more information. Hi there, this is Jillian on Love, and I am on a mission to teach people how to transform their romantic relationships by transforming the relationship they have with themselves. So whether you're in a relationship, you're single, or you're heartbroken, I've got you covered. I'm Jillian Tarecki, certified relationship coach and teacher with over 20 years experience helping people transform their relationships with themselves through their bodies, breaths, and minds. I have now coached and taught thousands of people to become better versions of themselves and change the way they show up for and within their love lives. In today's episode, I had the pleasure of speaking to The Minimalists. The Minimalists are Emmy-nominated Netflix stars and New York Times bestselling authors Joshua Fields Milburn and Ryan Nicodemus alongside their podcast co-host T.K. Coleman. And this simple living trio helps millions, I mean millions of people, live better lives. And I had the absolute pleasure to interview both Joshua and TK. And I was just floored. I knew a little bit about them. I've seen their movie and their show on Netflix. But these were men who really have a very profound spiritual practice. And it's not just something that they talk about. It's a way of life. It's not just about removing clutter in your home. It's also about how we approach relationships and how we approach love. And so these two men were just filled with so much wisdom, just dropping a lot of pearls of wisdom, and you're going to be wanting to take notes for sure. So without further ado, the Minimalists. Enjoy. Hi guys, how are you? Outstanding. How you doing? I'm doing well. Welcome. Good to be here. Tell me how this all came about. Were you always a minimalist? Like, does this come from being a hoarder and then finding the light and deciding to be a minimalist? <laughs> like, how did this all begin? Take it from the beginning, please. We have to go back to 1981, <laughs> I guess. Um, uh-huh. You know, I I grew up really poor. I was born in Dayton, Ohio, and a lot of drug abuse, alcohol abuse, physical abuse in the home that I grew up in. And I thought the reason I was so discontented growing up is I didn't have a lot of money. And so when I turned 18, I went out and I got that entry-level corporate job. I skipped college and I said, you know what? I figured out what the key to happiness is. If I just make enough money, you know what, if I make $50,000 a year, maybe that'll make me happy because that's more money than my mom had made in her life. And so I went out and by age 19, I was making 50K, but I was spending 65K. And I was like, oh, I forgot to adjust for inflation. (laughs) And so I started spending more and more and more seeking happiness externally. And by age 30, I'd sort of achieved everything I ever wanted. I was a picture of the American dream. I had the big house in the suburbs with more toilets than people. I had luxury cars, plural. I had the big walk-in closets full of designer clothes. And I had all of the excess stuff that we associate with success in this country. 
And that'd be great. You know, the average American household has 300,000 items in it. I'm not against stuff. The problem is, it's not like more things are bringing us more joy, more peace, more tranquility. And the two events happened to me right around age 30. I, my mom died. My marriage ended both in the same month. Oh, I've and been there. So I feel There you free. go. Well, what happens is I, I looked around and started questioning everything. Why did mm-hmm. I give so much meaning to all these material possessions? What is truly important in my life? Why have I been so discontented? Why isn't the stuff that I thought was going to make me happy, why isn't the stuff doing its job? And I realized that more wouldn't get me there. I actually needed to subtract. I needed to simplify. The happiness was already there. It was pre-existing, but it was covered up by excess stuff. And as I started simplifying my life, I spent about eight months letting go of a lot of excess things. I started feeling freer and happier and lighter. And I recognized there were all these other forms of clutter in my life as well. Our material possessions are just a physical manifestation of what's going on inside us. So if I have a lot of external clutter, I probably got a lot of mental clutter, emotional clutter, spiritual clutter, and then of course like career clutter and relationship clutter and calendar clutter. There are all kinds of clutter in our lives. (laughs) And it starts with the stuff, simplifying the stuff, getting the excess out of the way so we can make room for what's truly important. And that's really where theminimalists.com started back in 2010 was from this idea of letting go. And I started writing about it with my best friend, Ryan Nicodemus. And um, since then, you know, whether it's been our films on Netflix or the Minimalist podcast, we found different vehicles to communicate this message of living a meaningful life with less. Okay. In that journey of discovering living a meaningful life with less, who were the teachers and mentors that you found along the way that guided you into this self-discovery? Oh my. Well, for me, Josh and Ryan. (laughs) I was going to say, by the way, you know, my origin story is more superhero-like. It it, it started with a a big bright light in the sky. Mm -hmm. Uh, No, I'm just just kidding. Uh, (laughs) I guess you could say Ryan and Josh are my two bright lights in the sky. But, you know, for me, I was making the rounds on a number of different podcasts around that time for an apprenticeship program uh, that I co-founded. And when I came on this show to talk with Josh and Ryan about education, it was the first time I had ever been a guest on a podcast. And I felt like I was talking with friends and I felt like it wasn't an interview. It wasn't a show. It wasn't a performance. It wasn't about selling anything not even an idea. It was just about connecting and having good, meaningful conversation. And I left with that feeling of, man, I want more of that. It'd be great to do that again. And I came on this show and and joined joined these guys as guests several times, about six or seven times. It was 11. 11 times. Yeah. TK was a guest on the podcast 11 times. Eventually we were like, hey, TK, our audience loves you. We love you. Why don't you become a permanent fixture on The Minimalists? Yeah, it was kind of like common law marriage. I mean, at (laughs) at some point, it's like, hey, where are we going with this, right? So anyway, it it was just a a very happy alliance, and I've loved being part of this team. I've said it before, and I'll say it here, that of all the things I have done professionally, creatively, this is the first time in my life I've ever worked with anybody towards any project. And then at the end of the day, I say to everyone on the team, I love you. And they say the same thing back uh-uh. and we all mean it. And there, there's not a bit of inauthenticity and insincerity in that. And that's just 
really cool. That's just a really awesome thing. I, I don't know if I want to universalize it and prescribe it and say, this is what you should look for in a job, because I think it's possible to have a great career without working with people who tell you that they love you. But I'm very grateful to be in a position where I can do that. And I would say these guys and the, the entire team that we work with, Malabama, Danny Unknown, Professor Sean, everyone that we work with has been a mentor to me because I don't see mentorship as hierarchical where someone needs to be older than you or have more work experience than you. They are simply engaging life in ways that are adventurous, in ways that are interesting, and they positively infect you by the way they live, not necessarily by any ideology that they're trying to cram into your brain. And I think everyone on this team has inspired me to live more healthfully, to be more mindful, to be more self-respecting, to be more creative and all of those things. Yeah. Wow. So do you do like a weekly check-in with yourself in terms of, okay, where can I let go more? Where, where am I accumulating clutter? Because I think I would imagine that it's not something that you just decide. It's something that you, it's a daily practice. There's not a destination either. I wish right. there was, but it's kind of like a horizon. If you get into a boat here on the West Coast and you start sailing west, you'll never reach the horizon. You'll reach the point you see as the horizon, but as soon as you get there, there's always a new horizon. And I think minimalism is pretty similar to that because, well, let's be honest. I wish I could hand you a list of here are the 100 items that you should own and now you'll be happy and you'll be your life will be complete. That'd be really easy to be able to prescribe that, but the truth is it doesn't work that way. When I discovered minimalism, I was 29 years old. I'm 42 now, and my life is appreciably different. And so I'm constantly questioning the things that I'm holding on to. Does this thing add value to my life? And I'm constantly questioning the things I bring into my life as well because it's easy to justify just about anything. I'll, I'll hold on to this thing just in case I might need it someday in some non-existent hypothetical future. We call these just-in-case items. But of course, I never end up using those just-in-case items. And I hold on to tens of thousands of things if I'm not careful because just-in-case are the three most dangerous words in the English language. And so I'm constantly interrogating my things, but I'm also interrogating the other areas of clutter in my life because consumerism, it doesn't end with the purchases. Consumerism is just the ideology that acquiring things will make me complete or happy. But we can do that with relationships. So we have relationship consumerism. We can do that with our technology. We've got digital consumerism, right? Just constantly, incessantly scrolling social media. Nothing wrong with social media, right? It's a great tool. Just like a hammer can be a great tool. But when I start hitting myself in the he head with that hammer, it ceases to be a great tool. It ceases to be useful. In fact, it's less than useless. It's getting in the way. It's harming me. And we often do that when we are consumers of, blind consumers of excess. And of course, there's consumerism in all these other areas of our lives. There's spiritual consumerism. There is uh, whatever, whatever we're focused on. It's part of this sort of American psyche quite often to ask for more. More is better. More, 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 more. And that's really the message of consumerism, whether it's stuff or it's your relationships or mm. it's any other area of your life. More, more, more must be better. But that's not where peace or happiness actually lie. The peace and happiness lie on the other side of letting go, of clearing the stuff that's actually getting in the way, that's covering up that pre-existing peace that's already there. Yeah, clutter is in some ways analogous to distraction. How do you know what your distractions are? Well, 
You can't figure that out by analyzing things as they are in and of themselves and making judgments about them. You have to do that by asking yourself, well, what's my priority? What are my values? And then anything that deters you from that becomes a distraction. And so if your priority is to go to bed right now, well, then, you know, maybe watching TV becomes a distraction, not because it's inherently wrong, but because it's getting in the way of what is your priority at a different time on a different day. Maybe that's a really fun activity that brings the family together. In a similar way, clutter is anything or non-thing that gets in the way. And how do you know what gets in the way unless you know what the way is for you? And the way is your answer to the question, what are the results or experiences or relationships that matter most to me? Uh, Josh has a question that he always asks, and, and I think it's the essence of minimalism, where he says, how might my life be more with less? And so if you start with, well, what can I get rid of? Uh, how can I live off less? You're asking the wrong question. It's, wait a minute, how might my life be more with less? What's the quality of life I want to have? Because I'm not going to get rid of things out of a sense of legalism or religiosity, out of a sense of renouncing things as evil, out of a sense of believing that there is some set number of books or shoes I can have that puts me on the wrong side of the morality equation, but rather by saying, hey, what makes me fully alive? And then how can I clear away the excess that separates me, that alienates me from the simplicity of that joy? And so this is a question that we're constantly asking ourselves and we're constantly checking in with ourselves not in an obsessive way, but in a healthful way, in a mindful way of saying, hey, the life that I'm living right now, the role that I'm playing, the way that I'm showing up for me and my family, the habits that I'm locked into, is this where I want to be? Is this what makes me come alive? Or is this an outdated expression of who I used to be? Or is this a mimetic desire that I've inherited from someone else? And, and just practicing that awareness. Okay, so I have a couple of comments about that. So it sounds to me that the belief that underscores the minimalist lifestyle is the belief that happiness comes from within, not from without. Yes? I think that's that's fair. I mean, it always depends on what we mean by happiness, right? If I walk out on the street here in West Hollywood and ask 10 people what their definition of happiness is, I'm probably going to get 10 different answers. And that doesn't mean they're wrong. But I think ultimately it's like, what do we value? And some people, excitement might be happiness for them. For someone else, excitement might be total chaos and off-putting, right? And so for me, I really value peace. And therefore, quite often, excitement, the things that are, are compelling on the surface, they often get in the way of my peace. And it really boils down to what do I value? And then from that, happiness tends to be a, a byproduct. I completely agree. I was just going to say that when you can define what it is that you value. That's step one. When you can live your life in alignment with what you value, that's ultimately what gives people a deep sense of meaning. And I think that when people, whether they're aware of it or not, I think a lot of suffering is caused by living life not loyal to what is most important to us. And we do that for many different reasons. We will, we will get in the way of living our lives and according to what we value to meet certain needs, to meet certain needs for survival, to meet certain needs for connection, to meet needs to feel important in the world. And so we will betray our own value system in order to meet 
certain needs. So I guess what I'm hearing is always evaluating what that is. It's like always getting back on track towards what is most important to you and getting rid of quite literally and metaphorically anything that stands in the way between you and what is most important to you. You know, the word priority didn't have a plural until the 20th century. Mm. And it makes sense when you break down the etymology. Today, we talk about, oh, here are my 10 priorities, or the United Nations releases their list of 163 priorities. But what does priority mean? And Jillian, I I really think that's what you're alluding to here is like, what is my priority? Not priorities, because priority means the first thing. I can't possibly say I have 15 priorities. That is nonsensical because that's saying I have 15 the first things. If you say it like that, someone's going to look at you and sort of smush their face together incredulously because it doesn't make sense. And yet we found a way to say, well, here are my priorities. You could say, here are the things that are important to me, but what is my priority right now? It's having this conversation with you. And that means everything else I have to say no to Mm. in order to say yes to the thing that is my priority. That's Mm -hmm. absolutely right. Yeah. And and that's that's a clear example of one of the ways that less can be more, right? (laughs) This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What are some things that you would like to keep? the same about yourself or your life in 2024? What are you already doing super well in? What are you already progressing in? Think opposite of new year, new you. Because around New Year's, this is a time when we get obsessed with how to change ourselves instead of just expanding on whatever it is that we are doing right, or instead of just wanting to plant seeds for something that we want to see come to fruition years from now. If you've benefited, the thing about therapy is that it can really help you find your strengths so that you can get rid of all the pressure and the extreme resolutions that you think you need to achieve this year and this year only It just helps you really just appreciate how far you've come and to just think about your life more holistically, yes, but also just to look at the bigger picture of life. And that is very helpful because we can get very caught up in the minutia and the details and, like I said, put up a lot of pressure on ourselves. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge, which is fantastic. Celebrate the progress you've already made. Visit betterhelp.com slash on love today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash on love. So I recently moved. I'm a New York City girl. And I decided to move to Miami for a year to write my book. And I have some family here. I had been living in my Brooklyn apartment for almost 10 years. And such is the case when you move, a lot of people, including myself, will, you know, you go through your stuff and you're like, wow, I'm a hoarder. (laughs) I didn't even realize (laughs) 
how, like not not really. I mean, I don't know. I guess it depends on who's looking at it. But you know, you get shocked at how many things you accumulate. And I think that one of the most amazing, as difficult as moving is, one of the best things about it is throwing a bunch of stuff away. Now, in my process of throwing things away, there was something that I that I realized that was not news to me. It was just sort of reinforced or I was reminded of it, which is that I can easily give certain objects and possessions a meaning and that meaning will be very meaningful. And then all of a sudden I have an emotional attachment to something. Mm. And when I... Um, when I've studied and I mean, I haven't done deep study, but when I've researched and watched shows on hoarding and whatnot, just because I find it so fascinating, it's like an extreme version of that. It's literally like there's this feeling if I throw away this mug, I'm throwing away my relationship with my mom. Like it's that intense. There's consumerism, and then there is the meaning that we give the things that we own. And associating an emotion, when we attach an emotion and a strong emotion to something, like, for example, that new car may not be necessary, but it represents someone, it could represent someone experiencing freedom for the first time or financial freedom for the first time in their lives. And so that car becomes something very meaningful to them because it's a metaphor for something deeper. And so where do we draw the line between having these emotional attachment to things that might be quite valid versus the clutter? Yeah. First off, most of us are hoarders. Let's be clear about that. Yeah. There are five stages of hoarding. The people we see on TV with dead cats in their freezer and feces on the floor, that's a stage five hoarder. Mm -hmm. And um, that it's easy for us to point and sneer and say, oh, at least I'm not like them. But a stage one hoarder is just someone who has light clutter in two or more rooms. Mm -hmm. That's a stage one hoarder. Yeah. And I think that most of us are stage two or stage three hoarders, maybe even stage four hoarders, where it's not the people that you see on your TV set and yet we have a significant problem with stuff, which causes a cascade of other problems, financial problems, relationship problems, mental problems. But what you're talking about are the emotional problems. And TK can talk a bit about some of the emotional clutter that we experience from the stories we tell ourselves about the stuff that we're holding on to. Absolutely. So I, I think of that infamous line of dialogue between Harry Potter and Dumbledore, where Harry says, is this real or is it? inside my head. And Dumbledore says, it's inside your head, but why would you think that makes it any less real? Hmm. What you're pointing out, Jillian, is these attachments that we have don't stem from a physical necessity, but they stem from stories that exist inside our head. And yet those stories have just as much power in our lives as something physical that's happening to us. Those stories are real. And the first step to getting out of that is respecting those stories, like respecting the power that they have. And for most people, unpacking their things and decluttering their stuff begins with psychologically decluttering the stories that they're telling themselves about what it would mean. And so when we buy something, when we bring something into our homes, when we make something, it was John Deloney who says that the objects in our home are having a conversation with us. And he didn't mean that physical objects are sentient beings that are 
projecting thoughts into our minds, but rather every object reflects back to us and reinforces some value or some thought or some feeling that begins within. So although our thoughts start within, they don't end there. They manifest in our objects and are reflected back to us. And so if I go buy a basketball and I sit that on the desk in my apartment, well, I bought that basketball because there's a story that I'm telling myself about the role that I want that to play in my life and what it's going to mean for me. And every time I look at that, it's reflecting back to me and reinforcing to me that story. And if I evolve as a person and that story no longer reflects who I am, then this basketball is something that now becomes clutter. But getting rid of that means I have to confront that story that I was telling myself and decide, do I still want to hang on to that story? Do I still want to let that go? And so in most cases, deciding to let go of an object is not about letting go of the thing. It's about deciding what are we going to do with that story that we're telling ourselves, similar to how you said with, if I throw this away, I'm throwing my grandmother away. If I throw this away, I'm throwing my best friend away. And realizing, Mm -hmm. as Joshua said, that our memories are not in our things. Our memories are in ourselves. And there are ways that we can allow other people's love and other people's legacy to live through us and be present with us without hanging on to the things that we previously used to represent and reinforce them. But that takes inner work and it takes taking our eyes off the objects, off of the stuff and looking within at the story. Oh, it takes a lot of work for sure, because also... There's a memory in these, there's a story, which stories are filled with memories and there's nostalgia. And I think that a lot of the hoarding that we are all guilty of at some point in our lives or maybe throughout our lives really has to do with a lot of nostalgia. And nostalgia is an interesting emotion. It's kind of a manipulative jerk because, you know, it keeps us I don't know. I feel like it's like really, really close to depression. If we're too close in nostalgia, I wouldn't say that that is a particularly peaceful or joyful state. I don't know. Just something that I've contemplated quite a bit. And I think that that's one of the things is the nostalgic meaning that like a ceramic mug has and being able to separate that really is the process of detachment. This episode is sponsored by Honey Love. Okay, ladies, I have a proposal for you, a sort of New Year's resolution for you that's actually realistic. This is the year to finally stop wearing uncomfortable shapewear. Support for today's episode is from Honey Love, and Honey Love has revolutionized compression technology, so you no longer have to feel like you're suffocating while wearing effective shapewear. You'll immediately feel and see the difference. For a limited time only, you get Honey Love on sale. Get 20% off your entire order with our exclusive link, honeylove.com slash onlove. Support our show and check them out at honeylove.com forward slash onlove. By the way, the superpower short is really helping women everywhere. Sculpt and smooth from stomach to thigh by offering just the perfect amount of of compression without feeling like you can't breathe. And also, like we've all been there where you're trying to take off a tight piece of shapewear and it's very, very difficult and hard. 
This is important. Honey Love doesn't just do sculpt wear. They have incredibly comfortable bras, tanks, and leggings for everyday support. I love their bras and tanks. Ladies, Honey Love is just as easy to put on as it is to take off. So their products make you look good and they feel good. So treat yourself to the best bras and shapewear on the market and save 20% off at honeylove.com slash onlove. Use our exclusive link to get 20% off honeylove.com slash onlove. After you purchase, they'll ask you where you heard about them. Please support our show and tell them that we sent you. Start the new year with confidence. Thanks to Honey Love. So let's bring this into relationships, shall we? Because don't yeah, you have please. a book coming out about this? We have a, a book out right now called uh, Love People Use Things. It's about the seven essential relationships oh, okay. in our lives. But uh, TK also has uh, a book coming out called Emotional Clutter. So I think these two things, they, they tie in together uh, really closely because we don't realize it because we say yes to so many relationships in our lives that maybe they're birthed out of proximity or convenience. Mm -hmm. We lived in the same neighborhood or we work next door cubicles to one another. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with these people, but they may not share the values and I may not be able to serve that relationship and it may not be able to serve me. And that creates a lot of relationship clutter. Oh, it certainly does. I so, want to yeah, hear more. Let, let's dive in. Let's, let's talk about let's relationships. Let's go. Let's do it. So let me guide you with a question. How has adopting this life philosophy impacted your relationships as a whole, including your relationships with your family? And also how has it impacted your romantic relationship or relationships? Yeah. So in the work that we do, it's almost impossible to ignore the role that stories play in our attachment or agony that we feel over stuff. Because whenever we get a question or whenever we just sort of confront the clutter in our own lives, it's never as simple as, hey, I don't like this being here and I got to get rid of it and I can't find a place to bring it. It's always something along the lines of it would mean this for me to get rid of it or I don't want it to end up in the wrong person's hands because then that would mean that. And so that story always comes up. And so how this has helped me tremendously in all of my relationships, romantically, platonically, is understanding that people are never just the words they speak to you. They are never just the observable behavior that affects you. It's always about the story that they're telling themselves. And even if people don't care about what you care about, even if people don't resonate with what you want to resonate with them, they always care about the story they're telling themselves. And the key to connecting with people is not trying to wrestle with them, not trying to change them or argue them into your perspective, but it's demonstrating the curiosity that's necessary to understand the stories that they're telling themselves. Because when you ask people sincerely with a truly inquisitive spirit, not an interrogative spirit, about the stories they're telling themselves, it's almost as if they open a door to their hearts that allow you to be able to not just connect with them, but co-create with them in a way that's very powerful. I think about this quote by George Washington Carver, who found so many different creative uses from plants. And there was a scientist who visited him and he says, how do you do it? How are you able to find out so many things that no other scientist can discover? And he says, well, the flowers, they tell me. And he says, what do you mean they tell you? And he says, well, 
when you love something deeply enough, it whispers its secrets to you. Hmm. And one of the deepest forms of love that we can demonstrate towards another person is to grant them that gift and that grace of making them feel seen and heard by asking, what is your story? What is your story around that? So as an example, and we get lots of questions on this type of thing where it's like, hey, my spouse has this big box of stuff or five boxes of stuff and I hate it and they don't even use it. You know, they bought all the, this hockey equipment or they bought all these computers because they had some goal that they were going to go after and it's just sitting there and they're not even going after the goal. And I say, well, isn't that interesting? Forget about the stuff. This is someone that you love and that you're living your life with. And they had a dream that was so exciting to them that they bought all this stuff and they never looked at it again. That's so fascinating. We got to know about that, right? That's a great conversation. Hey, Jim. Hey, Sarah. I'm curious. No judgment here. You remember five years ago, all you could talk about was writing a book or playing hockey or learning how to surf and you bought all that stuff. I noticed that you haven't touched it. Has your dream changed? Or is there something else you need that you don't have? I'm just curious because I, I want to know how I can better support you. And now when you let them talk about their story, rather than you talking to them about the stuff that's getting in your way and that you need to change, something magical begins to happen. They begin to reflect on themselves in ways that they may not have otherwise done. They begin to tell you about fears and vulnerabilities and desires and, and challenges that they're having that allows you to have a conversation about something that's so much bigger than the boxes that are getting in the way. And so how this plays out in my own life is anytime you try to co-create or coexist with another human being, we're all going to have boxes and baggage that gets in each other's way because we're embodied creatures. To exist is to take up space. And so we're going to get in each other's way. But when we focus more on the story rather than the stuff that's getting in our way, we're able to connect and co-create in ways that are almost magical and, and overcome almost anything together. Does that make sense? No, it makes total sense. And it's completely spot on. And I think it's about being compassionate. I think it's about... I mean, that's just being a skilled person in a relationship. It's curiosity, it's compassion, it's, yeah, it's curiosity and compassion. There are some people who tell me like, look, I just don't have a compassionate disposition, okay? <laughs> I'm just not that type of person. And I say to that, curiosity can even get you there. And even if it doesn't get you there, it can almost get you everything that compassion does get you. Because in order to be curious, you have to acknowledge there's just some stuff you don't know. And the opposite of compassion is resentment and judgment and curiosity just undermines all of that. I agree with because that. Because in order to ask that question, you just got to let go of the idea that like, I know for a fact that you woke up this morning with the goal of irritating me. I know for a fact <laughs> that you don't think about anyone but yourself. I know for a fact that you're greedy and you're selfish and you're narcissistic. When curiosity comes in, it says, look, there are things about you that I don't know. So now your mystery is before me. I can appreciate you. I can go. appreciate you. So I'm curious if I were to come over to each one of your homes and to open up your closet, like what's the deal with your clothes? Does everything, do you have like five black t-shirts and three pairs of jeans and that's it? Like talk to me <laughs> about your closets. <laughs> yeah, I don't own any excess. And so I think if you came to my house right now, you'd walk in and you wouldn't say, oh my God, this guy's a minimalist. You'd say, wow, he and his family, they're pretty tidy. 
Do you、mm. just clean up? And I'd say, no, I, this is everything I own. Now, I own things that aren't essential. I want to be clear, I'm not an ascetic or a monk. And so I'm a minimalist, not a deprivationist. I don't want to deprive myself of useful things. We have something called the Minimalist Rule Book. It's a free download over on our website. It's 16 rules for living with less, but they're not really rules. They're just boundaries you can set up for your own life. And one of those rules is what we call the no junk rule. And it applies to everyone, whether you are a billionaire or you're below the poverty line. Everything you own can fit in one of three piles. That's what the no junk rule says. It's either essential, it's non essential, but value adding, meaning it enhances your life in some way, or it's junk, essential, enhancing, or junk. Now, we all have the same essentials for the most part. We all need clothing and food and shelter and education and vocation and transportation. And a toothbrush. But, <laughs> well, I think some people would argue with you about that, know, but、right? I'm not one of them. <laughs> <laughs> I have several toothbrushes.、Um, we all have similar essentials. They manifest differently. Professor Sean took the bus here today. That's his transportation. I drove my Toyota in here today. That's my transportation. Sometimes I'll walk. That's my transportation as well. We all need some、mm. means of transportation. We all need some clothes. For me, that's a simple black shirt most of the time. And for other people, they might want something with a little pony logo on it or an LV on it or whatever.、Uh, no judgment behind that. It's just not appropriate for me. However, I think where we really get caught up with those other two categories, I own a lot of things that are non essential, which at first sounds like, wait, a minimalist? You're exposed. How could you own non essential things? Well, The truth is, I could live without my coffee table. I would be just fine without it. But it enhances my life in some way. It amplifies the experience of living well. And so, why would I want to deprive myself of that? Now, I do think it does make sense temporarily to deprive yourself of something to see whether or not it truly adds value to your life. I could live without my couch, I could live without my dining room table, I could live without a bunch of things that I own. But they do add value to my life. Unfortunately, most of the items we own fit in that third category. They're junk. These are the things that have ceased to add value to our lives. Maybe they added value once upon a time, and I've continued to cling to it well into its obsolescence period. Or maybe it never added value to my life. I just told my story that maybe it will add value someday. And someday never arrived, and so I'm still holding on to it. I'm clinging. As I cling, I can't move forward. It's like when you get on the monkey bars. I showed my daughter how to get on the monkey bars a few years ago. And when she gets on them, she learns an important lesson there. You have to hold on, otherwise, you fall, but you also have to let go. Otherwise, you don't move forward.、Mm. And that's what living a meaningful life is about holding on to the things and the relationships and the things that are appropriate. But also letting go when it's appropriate so I can move forward. In order to do that, the first step is always to loosen my grip. Because if I just have butter on my hands, I'm not going to hold on to anything. I'm not going to get anywhere. If I have gorilla glue on my hands, I'm going to be stuck and I'm not going to get anywhere either. I'm just going to keep clinging.、Mm. This episode is brought to you by Modern Fertility. For many people, the start of the new year feels like the right time to schedule doctor's appointments and check in with where we're at health wise. But if this applies to you, what about your reproductive health? We don't know what 2024 holds, 
And even if you're not planning on having kids right now, understanding your fertility can help you make better decisions for your future. The traditional guidance with fertility has been just wait and see. But now we have tools to help us plan for and track everything in our lives, wellness, finances, career, school. Why is fertility still a wait and see? Did you know that one out of eight couples struggle with infertility? That's a large amount. Seriously, that really is a staggering statistic that most people don't know and aren't even ready to talk about. But we do need good information about our bodies in order to have informed conversations with our doctors and to make the best decisions for ourselves. We're supposed to go to the OBGYN for our annual checkup, but checking in with our fertility isn't usually a thing until one is ready for kids. And basically when one is already struggling to get pregnant, knowledge is power. And when you know more, you can make better decisions for your body, for your health, and for your future. We can find the answer to almost anything with a simple search on the phones, but when it comes to finding answers about our fertility, it's not that simple. That's why Modern Fertility was created. It's an easy and affordable way to test your fertility hormones at home with a simple finger prick. Mail it in with a prepaid label and you'll get your personalized results within six business days. Traditional hormone testing at a fertility clinic can cost over $600, But Modern Fertility tests the same general set of hormones for only $179. And if you go to modernfertility.com slash Jillian, you can get $20 off your test. Plus, you can get reimbursed for the test through your FSA, HSA. Right now, Modern Fertility is offering our listeners $20 off of the test when you go to modernfertility.com slash Jillian. That means your test will cost $159, which is a fraction of what it would cost at a fertility clinic. Get $20 off your fertility test when you go to modernfertility.com slash Jillian. Modernfertility.com slash Jillian. Guaranteed there are people listening to this episode who are staying too long in a relationship that's not adding value to their life or they are clinging to the person that they've been dating for a couple of weeks or a couple of months that's clearly not right for them and wanting to know how to let go. So if you were to mm. distill it to, I don't know, maybe three really important questions to ask yourself when it comes to deciding whether to let go of anything that could be clutter, what are the essential questions a person should ask themselves? Like, I would imagine, like, does this actually add value to my life? Yeah, I think that's a helpful question. But asking how to let go uh, is never useful. Because Here, I'll, I'll give you an example. I'm holding up this mug right here. Would I ever ask you how to let this go? Right. No, I'd just stop clinging to it, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe I don't want to let it go right now. But what if I looked down and I found out it was a snake? I wouldn't need, hey, um, TK, what's the three-step plan to let go of the snake? (laughs) I would simply let it go. Why? Because it's going to harm me if I don't let it go. And you know that instinctually. And we often know that about relationships. These relationships, they become toxic, not because the other person is necessarily bad, but together. It's like mixing bleach and ammonia. All of a sudden, Mm. 
you've got this toxic stew that by themselves, those two things are relatively benign, but together it is just a nightmare. Mm -hmm. And I don't need to figure out how to let go. I simply need to see that this is something that is going to harm me. Just like if I put my hand on the hot stove, I'm not going to look at TK and say, hey, TK, this is really burning right now. How do I get my hand off the stove? I'm going to recoil in pain. And if someone is recoiling in pain, they already know that it's time to let go. And that's the difference between a prescription and a perception, right? A prescription is what someone else tells you you should do based on a belief that this will make your life better. Whereas a perception is about the felt presence of immediate experience. You know, what does your conscience tell you? What does your body tell you? What does your heart tell you? And yes, there are a lot of very wise, practical, necessary things we can say about not basing your decisions on feelings alone. But if we go too far in that direction, we run the risk of demonizing feelings and treating them as if they are inherently monstrous. There's nothing wrong with paying attention to what feels off to you and what feels on to you. That's a necessary part of decision making. Okay, well, if I feel on about robbing a bank, should I go do it? No, that just means there's something else to be considered beyond filling, but not at the expense of filling. You always want to pay attention to what your body is telling you, to what's showing up in your body when you're with that person, when you're around that person, what's your heart telling you? So first question I would ask is, hey, what are my feelings telling me? I, I can get on to adding more to that, but what are my feelings actually telling me? A second thing is, I think it's important to remember that in every relationship, it's going to cost you something and it's going to challenge you. And so I think it's tricky to ask questions like, hey, is this relationship holding me back? I mean, everything that you do when you make any kind of commitment to it or you choose to show up for it is going to hold you back from absolutely, something, right? I like, couldn't agree with you more. By you being present with us and having this conversation, it's holding you back from, you know, being aware of your phone right now. You may have a friend that's calling you about something really yeah. exciting right now and you're being held back by your choice to be in this conversation. But the real question is, am I being challenged in the direction that I want to grow and go in? Every relationship challenges you but is that challenge transforming you into the kind of person that you want to become? So sometimes we can show up to a relationship and we can deal with all of these different challenges and we can keep our composure, but we're not paying attention to who we are becoming in the process of saying yes to those things and saying no to those things. And it's possible to lose your soul over time, even though you're composed and cool in the moment, because you're saying yes to something that's causing you to become something that you don't want to be. Third question I would say is, what is the story I'm telling myself that binds myself to this relationship? Sometimes we know we need to go, but we're telling ourselves a story like, this is the best that I can do. I'll never find anybody that can love me again, or I owe it to this person because I've been with them for this amount of years, or because, well, they were there for me during a really difficult time, and so it would be bad for me to leave them, or even though I wanted to leave this relationship a really long time ago, they're going through a really hard time right now and this will be a terrible time to leave. What's the story you're telling yourself and why should you persist in believing that? You know. And the last is I would say, instead of just asking how would it benefit me to leave this relationship, you can ask yourself, how might it be harming the other person to stay in a relationship when my heart has already moved on. Yes. One of the worst things you can do to a person 
is to treat them like you're doing them some kind of favor Oh, oh yeah, for being their friend and staying in a relationship with them. Even if you don't spell it out for them, that's going to bleed through the way you act and react to them. And, and they can feel it anyway. They can feel it. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the idea of, of contempt there is what TK is describing. And what's so fascinating there is that is the telltale sign of a relationship ending is when one person feels contempt for the other person. Well, what's the beginning of contempt? It's putting yourself up on a pedestal. It's trying to change someone in a relationship because that's the opposite of love. To love someone is to see them for who they are. You could say appreciate them for who they are even, but to see them for who they are without trying to change them, convince them, manipulate them, persuade them, merely seeing the other person, warts and all, all of their Mm. nuances, and saying, I accept you for who you are. I don't need to change you. I don't need to improve you. And by the way, we know this instinctually. For anyone listening to this who has kids, I remember when my daughter was one year old, I never looked at her and said, what can I do to improve this baby? (laughs) You would be looked at like a monster to say something like that, to try to improve a baby. But yet, we get into relationships, say, oh, this person's great. If I can just change these seven things about them. Oh, 100%. And that's not how to love someone. That's not how you love someone. Or can I somehow figure out to be the inspiration for their change so that I know that if they're changing for me, then they really love me. I mean, it's all the games and the stories and that we play with ourselves. And that is not love. Agreed. But for many of us, it's how we learned to love. It's the only, albeit limited, vocabulary that we have for love. And it's important to extend grace to ourselves and to others as we work out the process of learning how to love more effectively because we've all been wounded by others. And, you know, one of my mentors used to always say, you you can't know there unless you go there. And we know what we know. And we're all the products of families who modeled for us before we even learn how to use language, what it means to emote what it means to interact with another human being, what it means to disagree and so on. And so we all have this process of self-parenting where we have to unlearn and re-educate ourselves on more effective ways to love. And I think it's important to be gracious with ourselves and others as we figure that out. This episode is sponsored by Song Finch. Saying I love you can stir up all types of different feelings in people. It's easy for some people to say it, and it's not so easy for others. But there is a perfect gift that can say it for you, especially when that gift is truly, and I really do mean truly, one of a kind and uniquely crafted just for them. Let me tell you about Song Finch. Song Finch is the gift to show how much you care. It is an original studio quality song inspired by your story that's completely unique, personal, and lasts forever. Song Finch walks you through a simple four-step process to create an original song. All you have to do is tell them about who the song is for, provide some personal details, and let them know the type of song you want. Then you pick your favorite Song Finch artist or get matched with one and they'll pour their heart into writing, recording, and producing your original song in just four to seven days. Let me tell you something. I did this and it was absolutely the coolest thing ever. I got so into it. It's brilliant. 
you get to decide like what kind of music you want it to be. Like, do you want it to be rock? Do you want it to be R&B? Do you want it to be hip hop? Do you want it to be singer songwriter? And you choose that. And then you choose if you want a male or a female artist or if you just don't care. And you choose like the mood, like, do you want it happy and upbeat? Or do you want it more like self-reflective and sort of sad? You totally get to craft your song. And then they give you like options of different musical artists and you get to hit play and then you hear their voice, you hear their vibe, and then you choose one. I mean, it's just, it's so cool. I loved it. I cannot suggest it enough. For a limited time, Songfinch is letting our listeners upload their song on Spotify for free so you can listen to your new favorite song anywhere you go. Go to songfinch.com slash onlove and start your song. After you purchase... You'll be prompted to add Spotify streaming to your original song for free. That's a $50 value. This offer is only available for my listeners at my special URL. So it's songfinch.com slash onlove. That's songfinch.com slash onlove. Don't wait. Get started now. Do you guys have siblings? I do. Yeah, I have a, yeah. a brother who's a year older and TK does too. Yeah, I've got four older brothers. And what do they think about you and all of this in the minimalists? My brothers are my best friends in the world. I could literally tell them anything. And as long as it didn't uh, appear to be self-harming, they would have my back. Before <laughs> I was even finished telling them what I'm up to, they'd be like, go That's get it, bro. That's wonderful. You know, yeah, my brothers have my back. They're they're truly my best friends in the world. And I'm kind of spoiled. I'm the, I'm the baby boy in my family. <laughs> That's I, wonderful. I think it's... Anyone who embraces a minimalist lifestyle, the people closest to them, if you are modeling it in a way that is not didactic, yeah. they just see it as a tool. It's like, how does my brother feel anytime I use the mop to mop my floor? <laughs> he might tell me, oh, yeah, that's an interesting way that you're doing it, but he doesn't really care. He sees that yeah. mop as a tool. And there's no judgment behind, oh, wow, you use that kind of mop? I use this kind of <laughs> It's simply understanding that maybe we have different preferences, different mm -hmm. ideas of what it means to live a meaningful life. And I, I think what happens is there's a deep understanding there yeah. that I don't have to explain myself. In fact, I go out of my way to not have to explain myself unless someone asks a question. I never go around telling people, look at me, I'm a minimalist, and since you're my brother or you're my friend or you're my spouse or you're my lover or whatever, you should become a minimalist too or you should get rid of your things too. Because, well, as Upton Sinclair said, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still, right? And so I can convince you that you need to get rid of your stuff, and when you don't understand why, you'll just reacquire, you'll reclutter your life with these things. And so what I've noticed is the people around me they actually see the benefits of simplifying first. Because I don't go around and saying, here's the 67 ways to declutter your closet. That's not that helpful. I mean, mechanically, it can be helpful. But if someone doesn't know why, they don't understand the benefits of simplifying, then it's not going to seem that compelling to them. But I remember when I first started simplifying, my best friend, Ryan, who co-founded The Minimalists with me, he came to me one day and he just said, hey, man, why the hell are you so happy? And I wasn't supposed to be happy because my mom had died, my marriage ended, we were both in the same corporate career that we didn't enjoy. But he saw this abundance and this lightness, and it opened up the door for me to talk about the ways in which I had simplified my life and the ways in which I was continuing to simplify. And he was like, hey, I've got a lot of stuff, so maybe this would make sense for me too. 
I didn't prescribe it to them. He simply observed a change in me and said, hey, I want some of that. That's right. When we embark on a new path because we discover some tool or some philosophy that can help make our lives a little bit healthier or happier, we struggle with that insecurity of going at it alone. You know, let's, let's say I decide I want to run my first marathon ever. Well, surely my first step isn't to train for the marathon. My first step is to find someone else who can run the marathon with me, right? And what better candidate can I find other than my close friends, the members of my family? And so I preach, I sell, you know, I solicit and I proselytize because I want to get someone to go along with me, whether it's minimalism, a new religion or uh, some endeavor going back to school. When we need some kind of support, we go to people. And sometimes we try to recruit them to do the same thing. And if people aren't interested and we're not grounded in who we are and we're not willing to stand alone or go at it alone, then we can get defensive about that. And then we can start to get preachy. We can start to get pushy. And that can create a lot of resistance that really reflects back to us the lack of acceptance and affirmation that we have towards ourselves. That's not a comprehensive theory for what's going on every time someone rejects you. It's a multifaceted thing, but sometimes that can happen when we adopt some new path or a new process. We can take it back to our families before working it out and integrating it in our own lives and try early on to get everybody to go along with us. And that can lead to some problems. Sometimes the best way to preach is to live it out. The best way to sell the idea is to embody the idea and what it can do for your life, you know? Absolutely. And that's the ultimate letting go, by the way, because it's the opposite of trying to control. Last question. What is it that really gets you up in the morning? What is it about life? What motivates you? What drives well, thank you? Well, God, thank God it's not my alarm clock. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I, but what I don't drives do alarm you? What drives yeah. you? What motivates you? What keeps you going? For me, the thing that I am really compelled by is writing. That's the thing that I've always been most fascinated with since my early 20s. I've, I started writing fiction and, and TheMinimalists.com started as like this beautiful accident. When Ryan came to me and he had started simplifying his life, he's like, hey, you've been writing for a long time. Do you want to try and like start a website? We could just write about our journey. We didn't even know it was called a blog at the time. And we started just blogging about this experience. And what was really cool is that that added value to other people's lives and adding value is contagious. The way that our audience grew so tremendously at first was not from social media or algorithms or some big corporate place like Netflix and which has our films on it now. But way before that, it was simply, I'm going to share something that adds value to my life. So someone would read a blog post about letting go of sentimental items, for example, and they'd share that with their mother or they'd share it with their cousin or daughter or son. And then that person would share it with three other people at work. And the most powerful thing that we've done is write things that add value to people's lives and it becomes contagious. And so I'm really compelled by that. But I've also become what I call vehicle agnostic over the last 13 years that we've been doing The Minimalists because I realize that not everyone enjoys reading blogs. So we've written a few books now. We go out on, we've done 10 speaking tours, book tours over the last dozen years. And social media is a great way to communicate with people, especially now with Instagram and TikTok. I run into people on the street all the time. They're like, I love your Instagram videos. 
I share it with my mom all the time. Great. Mm-hmm. It's another vehicle to share. Or maybe it's one of our films on Netflix, or maybe it's The Minimalist Podcast. There are all of these different vehicles mm-hmm. that allow us to create something that other people find value in. Yeah. Oh, man. Okay, so I think of a lyric to a song, Finding Neverland, where it says, uh, my friends, we go to our everyday work, we return to our everyday homes, we sit in the everyday chair and drink from the everyday cup, but we never allow ourselves to go into the extraordinary places in our hearts and our minds. I ask you, my friends, how do you think a book is written? How do you think a song is born? How do you think a picture is painted? How do you think a race is won? How do you think the world gets started? If a little daydreaming is dangerous, the cure for it is not to dream less, but to dream more, to dream all the time. I think what moves me is the possibility of play. When we are children and we're together and we don't have any external constraints imposed on us and we're left to our own devices, what do we do? We make stuff up, not in order to earn money, not in order to react to something outside of ourselves, but just because it's in our nature to make stuff up and play. Let's play a game. Uh, um, I'll count to 10. Everybody runs and hides and and I'll I'll chase after you. And the, the last one who gets caught, we just make stuff up. And we just love making stuff up. We make up games. We make up stories. We make up arbitrary rules because it's in our nature as human beings to create. And what inspires me, what gets me out of bed is the possibility of dreaming and not merely for myself, but dreaming together with other people, getting together with other people that are willing to give themselves the permission to be creative from a space that is not driven by necessity and saying, hey, let's make something up together that can make another person smile and that can make us feel a little bit more alive not because we need to, not because we have to, not because we're bored, not because we're empty, not because that's going to give us some kind of status, because that's who we already are as human beings. Let's express this joy and this creativity and this imagination that we have by making a difference for people that might appreciate it. I think that's what drives me. Mm, Beautiful. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. And for coming on the show. Where can people find you? Oh, we keep it real simple. Everything is over there at theminimalists.com. You, can you find keep the it podcast. simple? I would never have thought that. <laughs> Sorry. Continue. <laughs> yeah, no, you can find everything over there. Podcasts, social media, films, et cetera. Jillian, you're very gracious. And uh, it's really fun talking with you. And, and I thank you for, for spending this time with us and creating this space for us. Oh, likewise. I learned a lot and it was, a, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Our pleasure. Cheers. Cheers. All right, everyone, that's it for this week's episode of Jillian and Love. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed. I just absolutely love them and I thought they were brilliant. But I do want to hear from you. So please do not hesitate to reach out to me at hello at JillianOnLove.com. Let me know what you thought about the episode. Let me know if there was anything else that you want me to talk about on Jillian on Love. I do this podcast for all of you and I love to read your questions and just your feedback and how this has been impacting you. And like every other episode, please do not hesitate to share it because you never know whose life you could be impacting in a very positive way just by clicking share. 
until next time and grateful to you. Happy New Year. Jillian on Love is a Q Code production. Executive produced by David Henning and Steve Wilson. Produced by Shin Yin Hu. Editing and music by Will Tendy. Hey guys, Heather Ashley here, host of the Big Mad True Crime Podcast. If you're looking for a true crime podcast with all of the details and none of the small talk, you have found your people. Each week, we dive deep into a new case and learn everything there is to know, from getting to know the victim and the impact their cases had on those around them, to the investigation into what happened to them and who is or might be responsible, and if the bad guy looks like he might drink whiskey by a dumpster or has the social skills of an ogre, we say it because we were all thinking it anyway. As the name suggests, we get big mad over true crime, and I would love to have you join our incredible community of listeners with big hearts and zero time for small talk. Subscribe to Big Mad True Crime anywhere you listen to podcasts and listen to new episodes every single Monday. Are you ready for the ultimate Love Island experience? Join us on After the Island. We're going back to where it all began, Fiji. Love Island USA Season 5 is making a splash on Peacock right now. And guess what? Your favorite recap show is back too. Welcome to After the Island. Join us as real-life besties and co-hosts, Elizabeth and Alex, as we deep dive into each sizzling episode of Love Island USA. We'll spill the tea, interview contestants, answer fan questions, and give you unprecedented behind-the-scenes access to the wildly popular world of Love Island. Don't miss a single moment of the drama, romance, and unforgettable island vibes. Listen to After the Island on any streaming platform.